Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning, church. It is a beautiful morning, isn't it? Just a perfect, perfect day. And um, this morning we're continuing our studies of Acts. Those of you that are new, we've been going through a, a study of the book of Acts, and I hope you've been enjoying it. You notice I've titled the message, Clear and Present Dangers. And uh, this is the beginning of the persecution of the church. And this is just the beginning. The, the reason why I'm, I'm calling it that title is it's, if you read the book of Acts, it's really exciting. It's like an action movie. And uh, the persecution is going to ratchet up. Uh, this is just the beginning. But when we get to the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 7 and then chapter 8, they get scattered out and we meet a character named Saul of Tarsus. So it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. I hope you're enjoying it. So this week we'll be in chapter 4, which is really just a, a seamless continuation of events that began with the healing of the man that was lame from birth in chapter 3. And uh, by the way, I just want to welcome those of you that are watching on live stream. We welcome those folks as well. So this dramatic healing which manifested after Peter said to the layman in chapter 3, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this draws a large crowd. Peter seizes the moment and preaches his second recorded sermon after Pentecost, calling all who heard to repent so their sins would be wiped out and spiritual refreshing Salvation and deliverance would come to them through Jesus, whom they'd rejected and killed, and now is risen. What we are seeing start to unfold here by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and the early church is the beginning stages of the fulfillment of the Great Commission, summed up in the phrase from Acts 1, verse 8 You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In chapter 2, the Spirit had been poured out, the gospel was proclaimed, and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. A new community is born, a people fully devoted to God's Word, to His body, to communion and prayer. They were doing what Jesus had told them to do. Everything is going great until... Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple at evening prayer around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and this man is healed. And Peter seizes the opportunity and proclaims the gospel to all those hearing. And it introduces the first wave of opposition and persecution. What we're going to see from the text is that persecution creates more opportunities for the spread of the gospel. Persecution creates more opportunities for the spread of the gospel. We're also going to see that persecution serves to increase the courage and boldness of the apostles. It increases their courage. We also see that persecution is an impetus for prayer. 
we'll also see that persecution ultimately serves God's purposes, that God uses these trials, these persecutions for our good. We'll also see that persecution brings greater unity in the church. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, your devices, and we're going to read this long section. It's an exciting one. So let's read together, chapter 4, verse 1 to 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming to Jesus, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Powerful, powerful account. So, this opposition begins with the religious leaders coming to confront Peter and John, who were still speaking after the healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3. I told you before that this is happening in the late afternoon during the time of evening prayer. Presumably, a, a lot of devout Jews would have been present. The commotion is large enough that it draws the ire of the religious leaders. Notice that Luke identifies three classes of leaders that were not happy. The priests, the Sadducees, and the temple guard. Luke records that they were not happy because, one, they were teaching the people. The priests and the scribes were the ones who saw themselves as having the authority and qualifications to teach. And here, in their own minds, are people who are unprofessional, unqualified, and they're teaching in the temple courts. They were not happy because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, who were the ruling class, did not subscribe or believe in the resurrection of the dead, which the apostles proclaimed in Jesus. Then you have the commotion. It seems like this is out of order, and you have the, the chief of police, the captain of the guard, and by the way, he was second in rank to the high priest. And so he shows up. So they arrest them. And since it is late in the day, they put them in custody until the next day when they'll convene a court to try them. Now, in spite of this, we read in verse 4 that many who heard, they heard the word they believed. And the aggregate number of believers now comes to 5,000. And this does not include the women and the children. This is amazing. This is a 66% increase from chapter 2 right after Pentecost. The kingdom of God is advancing as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed along with the miraculous healings by the apostles. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Amen? In Matthew chapter 16, 16 and verse 18. So, they bring them to trial the next day. It's a formidable scene. You have the rulers or the Sanhedrin they consisted of 71 members, presided over by the high priest. You have the clan elders. You have the teachers of the law, the scribes, the ones who copied and interpreted the law. You have members of the priestly family. What is even more interesting is you have two people present who were there at Jesus' trial and condemnation. They were very prominent. 
Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Remember those characters? They're present. All the big guns are present, probably situated in a semicircle with Peter and John and the man who was healed in the center. Would you agree this would have been pretty intimidating? I mean, these are the guys that are, they run Jerusalem. They're the leaders of Israel. Look what happens. You couldn't get a better setup in the line of questioning they choose to take. This is so amazing. Verse 7. They ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? Their questioning goes straight to the cause of the healing of the lame beggar. They could have started talking about the resurrection, right? You have the Sadducees there. They could have started talking about doctrine. No. This is the, they don't realize this is the perfect setup question for Peter's response. Do you see God at work here? God is on the scene here. He, he is the one in control. The Bible says in Proverbs 2, actually 21 verse 1, not Proverbs 2, 21 verse 1, it says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. This was the perfect point for Peter to launch his defense. Beginning with verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I want to stop there for a moment because it's important to view this in light of how Peter responded at Jesus' trial. He was there, right? The night he was betrayed. So this event must be kind of like a deja vu for Peter. He's seen this before. In John chapter 18, what happened the last time? What was, how was Peter responding to what was going on with Jesus? He denied Jesus, right? Three times. Now it also must be a sense of like, I've seen this before because the very question they're asking the apostles was what they asked about Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? But this time, Peter is different. There's something radically different about him. Jesus said in Acts verse one, chapter 1 and verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Peter, by the Spirit's enablement, responds by putting the court itself on trial for what they did to Jesus. He is resolute, he's articulate, and he's unintimidated. He sees this court trial as an opportunity to give witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to give it to the people that were responsible for condemning him and crucifying the one who is now raised and by whose power the lame beggar was healed. He does not equivocate one bit. The rulers are the ones who are captive. They are the ones who are blind and lost. They're the ones who, unbeknownst to them, have been drawn into a standoff with the apostles by God himself. Peter prefaces his response by saying in verse 9, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? He, he takes that question, which is kind of open-ended, and using irony, exposes the uncompassionate hard-heartedness hard -heartedness of these leaders to not acknowledge that something actually good had happened. Someone who had been crippled 
for many years had been healed in the temple courts. The rest of the people outside this court are rejoicing at the miracle. But you guys have brought us in here like we're criminals. You just see a change in Peter from the cowering response at Jesus' trial to now the resolute but tempered boldness in the spirit. So verse 10 to 12, he puts the court and by extension all of Israel on trial by repeating in condensed version what he had said in the last two sermons he has given in Acts chapter 2 and 3. He directs his response not only to the court, but to all the people of Israel. Verse 10, he says, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel. His answer is broken into eight points. He testifies to Jesus' name and title. Jesus the Christ. Christ means the anointed one. Identifying him as the anointed one of God. To the Jewish leaders it would mean that Peter is making the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. The one spoken of in the book of Daniel. He testifies to his humanity. That he's from Nazareth. His earthly origins. His hometown. Alluding to his lowly background. But clearly the one who this same body had tried and condemned. He testifies to his death at the hands of sinners whom you crucified. The ruling court was directly culpable and by extension all of Israel for Jesus' death. He testifies to his resurrection whom God raised from the dead. The one whom they tried and condemned to death is alive. And it's through him that same, legger is, same lame beggar is standing before them healed. He testifies that his rejection had been foretold by the prophets. He, this Jesus, is the stone that was rejected and is now the foundation or cornerstone. Peter quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, to further indict the ruling council. He says to them that they were the builders in the, in the passage in Psalm 118. They had been entrusted with the spiritual building of God's people, Israel. And they had rejected the one on whom the whole building was meant to stand. All the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonial laws pointed to Jesus. So all their religious efforts and work were really nothing if they were not rooted in Jesus, the foundation stone. But the punchline, the coup de grace, if you will, is verse 12. Let's read it together. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So he testifies to his deity, salvation in no one else. To those present, the word salvation, yesha, from which we get Yeshua, would invoke the history of God delivering his people. Remember in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, Miriam's song after they've crossed the Red Sea, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become what? My salvation. Psalm 18 and 46, the Lord lives 
and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Psalm 25, verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God, Yahweh, was Israel's salvation. And keeping his law was the way to righteousness. Peter is in effect saying Jesus is equal to the God who in their minds was Israel's savior. Does that make sense? And that now through Jesus, this salvation or righteousness is obtained. He also testifies to his unique and singular qualification. There's no other name under heaven that is, that is in all creation through whom we obtain salvation. It's only Jesus who has been exalted to God's right hand and who shares a place that no one else can occupy. In Peter's first sermon after Pentecost, he testified to this. He said, Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He testifies to his divine origin, given among men. This points to his divine origin and purpose to bring salvation to a sinful humanity. Isaiah 9, 6 we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 14 and verse 4. People say Christianity is too narrow, too exclusive. How can you claim that Jesus is the only way? Well, I challenge you to find anyone else who meets these qualifications. There is no one else who died a sinless death, who kept the law perfectly, who satisfied God's justice on our behalf. There are many ideas and philosophies and people out there that claim to be the path of salvation or righteousness, but they all fall short. I was sharing the Bible with someone recently, and he brought up the concept of karma, which you find in Hinduism and Buddhism, and basically proposes that the sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence are viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. This is reincarnation. But he was actually wrestling with the notion of whether evil people get their due. So I gave him an example of the real-life logical ramifications of that worldview. I said, go to Thailand. Now, I love Thailand. It's a beautiful country. My daughters went there on a missionary trip. They told me how beautiful it was, and they showed me pictures. I'm not bashing Thailand. I'm, I'm telling you about what this philosophy, the ramifications have brought in their society. When you go to a place where they view people who are disabled, who are born disabled as having deserved that, and you see them left to fend for themselves with no one to care for them, it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. On the converse, 
It makes those people who were born in a higher caste, that they deserved it. So they look down on everybody else. So it's horrific in terms of those societies and how this works out. And he had never thought about that. There is only one name under heaven, freely given through which we can be saved from our moral guilt before God. It's in that same name we are made new, that we are transformed so that we are no longer slaves to the moral depravity we were captive to. But we were made new in our hearts, and now we can live to serve our God. Praise his name, amen? Praise his name. So after Peter's defense and proclamation, the rulers in the court say, oh, wow, we're cut to the heart. What must, what must we do to be saved? Do they say that? No. Instead, they're astonished at Peter and John's boldness because they recognized that they were uneducated and common men and that they had been with who? They had been with Jesus. So this is a testimony to the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, but also to the discipleship they had with Jesus. Jesus had prepared them for this moment. We see this in Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. And when Jesus was instructing, and when they bring you before the synagogues, which they're doing now, and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And we see that going on right now. Another thing I observed in reading the text is that Peter does not ask the ruling council to repent like he told the people in his last two addresses. The leaders should know better. They are teachers of the law, but were in error about God's purpose for the law, which was to reveal their inability to keep it. They too would need the saving grace of Jesus. Paul says the law was added because of transgression, because of sin in Galatians 3.19, and that there is no one who is justified before God based on the law because we all fall short of this standard. How many have realized that, that we all fall short? It's only by faith in his one and only son, Jesus, that we are justified and made right with him. The truth of the message did not get through to them. This is in contrast to the throngs of people that have been receiving the message wholeheartedly and repenting and turning to Jesus. These religious elites were blinded by their own false piety. Tragically, many people who reject Jesus today are in the same boat. They have a false sense of security in their religious practices. They would never admit it. But they are bankrupt of any spiritual power and real transformation. So verse 18, after they send them away, having been stumped by what Peter said and the evidence of the, the healed man, they call Peter and John back and give them their verdict, which is they were not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So basically they put a gag order on them. It's still going on today, church. It's still going on today. You can speak or, about or mention any other name. But as soon as you start talking about Jesus, people get offended. 
People get riled up. And, and what's amazing is that people will tolerate the most vile speech, the most disgusting language, but will abhor bringing up Jesus in conversations. Why is that? Why, why is that? I'm just talking about Jesus. He's a historical figure. He's a guy who really lived. You know, like Mark Twain. I'm talking about, you know, a guy who really lived. <laughs> but I think it's spiritual. It's spiritual. The God of this world, Satan, is working behind the scenes. Amen? And he's opposing the work and mission of Jesus. And men love the darkness more than they love the light. You know, on the news the other day, I was happening to watch, and I caught a glimpse of this segment. National, you know, one of those prime time news hours, whatever. And they had someone expert in the, in the zodiac and horoscopes and all that. And, and they said, we're going to have so-and-so who's going to come and tell us about the future. And I said, oh, my goodness. We'd be hard-pressed to have the... You know, on, on, on network news, someone come and, t and talk about what Jesus says about the future. <laughs> so, but it's just all over, culture, the name of Jesus. Nobody wants to talk about Jesus. Okay, we go to verse 19 and verse 20. I love Peter and John's response. In verse 19, he says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, this is an awfully clever answer that puts the burden back on the council because they would have to agree that listening to God in order to obey him would be the right thing to do, right? The question is, is the council speaking to, for God or do they have their own agenda? As Christians... We're told to pray for our leaders. Would you agree? And to respect the laws that are in place. Romans 13 tells us that. But there comes a time when the state crosses a line and makes laws and decrees that are an attempt to muzzle our voice and our testimony. I remember seeing this as a young Christian in Uganda during the tyrannical rule of Idi Amin. Any speech that was deemed a threat to the regime was censored. And this actually happened to me. We, we were doing a lot of ministry, and we would perform outreaches, sometimes at the major venues in town. And one of those was the National Theater. And I was told by the people that run that whole venue, they said, well, we have to make sure that all your lyrics get looked at by this government agency because they don't want any subversion any talk that would threaten the regime. I said, you've got to be kidding me. We're just singing uh, <laughs> songs about Jesus. And uh, I said, no. they said, no, you have to send everything that you're going to talk about, sing about, we have to see it. And so I sent my lyrics in of all the songs, and it came back with lines through it. You can't sing about this. You can't sing about that Jesus is Lord. You can't sing that he's going to rule. I was like, amazing that we're going to threaten the regime, right? <laughs> and, and that was the reality. Um, but we sang those lyrics anyway. 
we could not help but sing about Jesus. We knew that we had crossed the state right there had crossed the line for us. And we would rather obey God than obey them. So Peter and John insist that they have no other option but to speak about what they have seen and heard. They have seen the risen Jesus after his death with their own eyes. They have seen his ascension in chapter 1. They have heard his instruction to them to be his witnesses. The reality and meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation in their mind cannot be silenced. So what do they do? They're released, okay? And they go and tell their fellow believers. I love Luke's terminology. They're friends. They're friends. These people did life together. They were close. They were united. They tell them what had transpired and what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And immediately they turn to God in prayer. The languages, they lifted their voices together to God. It's a beautiful scene of solidarity and unity. The prayer begins with an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in worship. The God of creation in verse 24. They acknowledge that he's the God of revelation in verse 25 and 26. They quote Psalm 2. The one who spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. David's words in Psalm 2 were God's words. And these threats from the Jewish leaders are against God and his anointed, Jesus Christ. They testify, they acknowledge that he's the God of history. All the opposition and the threats that began with the trial and condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus, authored by Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all this was foreordained for God's purposes. They see all that is transpiring in opposition to the gospel as part of God's plan. You notice verse 28, they say, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, do we look at trials from this perspective most of the time? I don't think so. I think if we were in the same place, we'd probably say, Lord, take away this. Take away this persecution. Look at their petitions. They ask, Lord, look upon or consider their threats. Verse 29. Consider their threats. Don't take away their threats. Consider their threats. They pray for courage to speak God's word with all boldness in the face of the prohibition to speak. 29b. They also ask that God would continue to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. It's a powerful prayer. But look at God's response. <laughs> the praise is shaken. Man, what an answer. It's like God is saying, I'm going to answer that right now. I'm going to show up. Why do you think that is? That God, by his Holy Spirit, would show tangible evidence that he's in agreement with this prayer. It's because they're praying according to his will. They're praying according to his will. He's the one who told them to go out. God, we're following what you, to, you told us to do. And they're praying for boldness, for courage to do what he's told them to do. And right there, God lets them know, fills them with his spirit, 
And they continue to preach the word with boldness. Powerful, powerful. So, our response to external threats to our witness should be prayer. Regular prayer with believers. Prayer that acknowledges God's hand in the circumstances, but also prayer for courage to do His will in proclaiming the gospel, and also prayer for God to do what seems impossible for the sake of His glory. The early church was devoted to prayer. A few weeks ago, we studied about prayer from the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 and how it should be part of our offensive strategy against the schemes of the evil one. This passage, I have to confess, challenged me greatly. Really challenged me. How many of us have ever prayed with someone who's an unbeliever out in public. Anybody ever prayed with someone? Out in public with an unbeliever. I think that should happen more often, don't you think? This passage should challenge, challenge us to pray for opportunities to share about who Jesus is unapologetically. To use whatever response we get, whether negative or positive, as an opportunity for prayer or proclamation should also motivate, motivate us to seek to be filled by the Holy Spirit that our lives would demonstrate our commitment to Jesus as his witnesses, as those entrusted to take the good news of his kingdom to the lost. So I'm going to conclude by giving us some charges, okay? I want to challenge all of us this week and ensuing weeks to pray for God to give us boldness to share about Jesus. To pray for God to give us opportunities to share the gospel with at least one person a week. I think that's a bar we can meet, right? One person a week. I encourage you just to ask questions. I always ask questions of people. When people tell me, what they believe or what they are thinking about, I say, oh, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? And usually that will, that will give you a track to go on in terms of sharing your own testimony. I was sharing with a man recently. He was asking me about his marriage. And he was a non-believer. I knew he was a non-believer, so I shared with him that before I got married, I didn't know what marriage was all about until I started reading the Bible. And from there I was able to share the gospel with him. So there's, there's different ways that you can come in and share the gospel with people. Pray for God to fill you with His Spirit. Amen? As you seek those opportunities. Pray for God to do the miraculous. We need to pray more for that. Amen? That God would do what seems impossible as you step out in faith, in obedience to Him. And as you respond to those needs and obstacles that you encounter. I read it somewhere that we the church are the pilgrim people of God. The church is on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end time to meet its Lord who will gather all into one. At Hope Chapel, we have a slogan we've had for many years, win, equip, send. I mean, everybody know that, right? We win others to follow Christ and equip them for life and service, and then we send them out to do the same. Just like Peter and John and all the early church believers, we are to be Jesus' spirit-empowered witnesses 
to our family, to our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, and the world around us. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess our falling short in being your witnesses. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for this. Ask God that you would fill us with your spirit. I know there's some here this morning that you have called to be witnesses beyond their family. You've called to be missionaries, missionaries in their local environment, missionaries to the world. Well, I pray that you would release more laborers to your harvest, even today, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.